Welcome again to the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. We're here to talk about Exodus chapter 6. The sermon title is The Faith of Evacuation Promise. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. So it's good to be with you again. Um, this text, kind of like last week's text, is straightforward. And, but it's a great opportunity for these ones that are straightforward where you don't have to do a lot of apologetics, uh, heavy lifting, or defenses of strange scenes in the text or defend these tangential ideas, which um, to say they're tangential is not to say they're insignificant, like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but it takes time to do that stuff. And it's important to do that stuff because we got to lay the groundwork so people can receive the word and the spirit can act on it well. But weeks like this week and last week with a straightforward text, give you the opportunity to really hone in on some of the practical training that we need to be doing as teachers. And maybe the most significant of all of that is that we need to be training our people to read the Bible well. I think we do a really good job as evangelicals to push daily devotion, uh, to push being the word daily. And it is right and good and important to be reading the Bible. But if we don't help our people to read the Bible well, then I wonder if we're missing out on a lot of fruit that could be occurring. One of the most shocking things to me, and this is because I truly do believe in the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, which is to say that as we read the Scripture, those with uh, submissive hearts, those with humble um, humble mentalities that submit themselves to the Lord, they see God's glory in the Scripture, and the Scripture testifies to itself and authenticates itself, and they take it as true and errant and fallible and all the rest. I separated the reading of the Bible with the reading of the Bible by a humble people, all right? And so it was shocking to me to find out that a larger number than you'd expect of New Testament scholars are atheistic. Uh, now, this wouldn't be any scholars that, that we read, really. Um, no scholars that I recommend to you when I recommend commentaries and the rest of it. But there's people out there who devote their lives to understanding the intricacies and nuances of the New Testament. They're, they know the text better than I probably ever will, and they remain atheistic. They remain God-haters. And that just stunned me, because I just assumed that if someone read the Bible that much and knew the Bible that well, well, then they would they would be believers. But there's a difference, of course, between knowing it, knowing the stuff of it, knowing the context of it, etc., and understanding it and submitting to it, I guess. So obedience is really the problem, as it always is. So I share that little story with you just to say this. It is great that our people are reading the Bible. Step two is to help them read it well. And I think this text affords us the opportunity to do a little bit of that hermeneutical training. And again, the term hermeneutic just means science of interpretation. So biblical hermeneutics will be the science of Bible interpretation. So a great place to start with all of that is the initiation of this promise, as that's really what this text is getting after. 
And so we we see we see a connection as we saw in chapter three between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and this God who was calling Moses to this work. Uh, and God makes that connection again. So in, in verse two of chapter six, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And then he goes on to talk about hearing the people now. So if we if we hop back to Genesis chapter 15, we can see that promise initiated with uh, with, with Abram. So Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So the promise to Abram, your people are going to be enslaved, oppressed, they're going to be in captivity, 400 years, uh, but I will deliver them. I've made this covenant promise to you that you'll be the father of many nations, that your seed are ultimately Messiah, but then also that you're going to birth you know, Israel and, and all these tribes and all these people. And I'm going to judge that nation, which, of course, now we know is Egypt. And um, and they're going to return to the land and they're going to claim the land that I promised you. So I know of people who will go to the Bible and, and, and read it and look for hidden meanings everywhere. And they'll say it's very difficult. The Bible is very difficult to read. And my first pushback on them is always let Scripture interpret Scripture. Use your cross references. Uh, see if there's comments anywhere else so uh, what what it does here is it lets us tie together the promise given to abram that god is fulfilling in part that covenant made with abram through the person and work of moses which ideally would give motivation and confidence to the people but doesn't seem to as we uh, as we see in in chapter six where they're still a little bit rebellious against him we can do the same thing just within the context of exodus so God is reminding Moses in chapter 6 of what he promised in chapter 19. Uh, he says, however, I know that the king of Egypt will not allow you to go, even under force from a strong hand. But when I stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles that I will perform in it, after that he will let you go. So in many ways, Moses should have expected to fail, at least initially, when he just went and asked. God told Moses explicitly that Pharaoh wasn't going to respond until the Lord brought the pain on Egypt. And Moses still seems shocked by it, still tries to get out of it, still tries to have someone else sit in his place. And so even within this same chapter, we can refer back and use our cross-referencing tools to demonstrate how Moses is still resisting his calling, at least on some level. So he's shown up physically in Egypt, and he's already approached Pharaoh once. But we still wonder if he's shown up spiritually, if he yet has full confidence, even after the miracles um, that he performed to prove to the Israelites that he was who he said he was. At the slightest rejection, um, at the slightest rejection, Moses 
wants to throw in the towel and just be done with it. And I think that gives us a lot of a lot of direct application. First, for the gospel, is that Jesus never threw in the towel. We see an incredible contrast in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying, uh, "Lord, if there's if there's another way, then take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done." And he obediently follows, even to the point of death on a cross. And of course, is raised as validation of his testimony. And in Moses, we see the exact opposite. <laughs> it's, it's okay, I'll go at the first sign of trouble or hardship. My will be done, Lord, not yours. I'm out of here. I, I don't want to do this kind of work. So we can certainly tie it to the to the Gospels. And then we can tie it to some direct application. Uh, just three chapters difference. Again, we don't know how much time that is. Moses uses these temporal indicators like later, sometime after, these sort of things. So we don't know how long it was. But how many times in our in our own lives, and I can speak for myself here, where we we think we discern our calling, we act on it. It doesn't go how we perceived it in our minds. It doesn't it doesn't go the way we planned. And we're quick to say, well, maybe I misunderstood my calling. I know I went through a heavy season of that, um, graduating with the PhD in philosophy, and having my heart changed by the Lord in my last semester. Well, my last two semesters, I guess, as I was finishing out my dissertation and wanting nothing more but to be in the local church, yet having only academic training. And I didn't know what to do. Just applied to a ton of churches, just figured any of them would take a shot on me. They didn't. And I went through a pretty dark and discouraging season of maybe I misunderstood my calling. Um, You know, I chased this academic rabbit that I thought I wanted to do, teaching college and seminary. And now all I want to do is be on the local church, and I know I feel called to the local church, and but nobody wants me, Lord. I've been rejected at every turn, just dozens and dozens and dozens of rejections. So well, maybe I misunderstood my calling. I was very much like Moses. I wasn't like Jesus, who would say, you know, not, not my will but yours. I'm just going to start lesson planning. I'm just going to start doubling down on my spiritual input. I'm going to start reading books on Christian education and the rest, because I want to do that in the local church. That wasn't that wasn't my response. My response was, oh, I must be wrong. Let me go start looking for other stuff. Let me find some other outlet. And and you as the teacher and you as the leader of your group have a unique position to stand firm and anchored when your people are swaying. Um, the reason I want everybody in the church to be a teacher is because the teachers are the ones that dig in the Bible the most. And you find that the teacher grows at such a faster rate than the people in the group because the the teachers all over the text constantly and because you're deep in the text you see it play out in your life week over week over week over week but our people who are in the groups don't really do that i mean they may read a little bit and prep for the lesson but they don't they don't saturate in it they don't immerse themselves in it like you do and so i i beg everybody to become a teacher just so they'll take the bible more seriously and get a little bit deeper into it but because that's who you are you can stay more anchored. You, you can continually point to the promises of God, and we can use Moses here as a contrast to say, hey, it doesn't mean your calling is wrong just because the immediate, the immediate realities of it um, don't work out. And moreover, is there a point in your life like verse 19 of chapter 3 where the Lord told you to expect this and you're not? And for me, that certainly was the case, is that I had a really great mentor who is a life group leader here. And and he just told me it's not always about you. And you say, wow, wait a minute, I'm humble. I've I, I gave up my engineering degree, and I've been faithful to pursue this degree in seminary to be able to love on Lord's people well. 
And you just say, you just said point blank, it's not about you. Sometimes it's about getting communities ready to receive you. So what you need to be doing is prepping yourself to receive them. And that's such a, that's such a good point is that it isn't always about us. And I've stolen that line and used it with many other young men who are struggling and has helped help them every step of the way to say that here's what you can control in your life. You can control your spiritual inputs. Are you in the word? Are you in prayer? Are you in community? Are you in fasting? Um, are you in scripture memory or whatever silence and solitude? Are you abiding? Are you Sabbathing and all the rest? You can control that stuff. You can't control always how people receive you. You can't always control who's going to want you and who's not. We leave that up to the Lord. And so we need to encourage our people. You want control of your life and you want to be obedient to God? Well, start inputting spiritually into yourself and then watch the spirit work on the community around you to make it conducive for your witness and your testimony. Certainly born true in my life. So we want to be more like Jesus in the Gospels. Not your will, but mine. I will prepare to be that sacrifice for you as opposed to Moses. I told you he was going to say, no, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. Um, that, that's the default attitude, but that's the attitude we got to reject. So what do we do with genealogies? Well, it depends on which genealogy. Um, in my preaching practicum, I think I've shared this before, but in my preaching practicum, one of the four sermons we had to preach over that semester was one that the professor called tough texts, which would be just sort of strange Odd things in the text, maybe like slaughter all the women and children. Um, how are you, you going to preach that with respect to the conquest narratives, various things in Song of Solomon? But he would always throw a bunch of genealogies on there and say, if we're called to teach the full counsel of God, which we understand to be the word and genealogies are a part of that word, then we ought to be able to preach something out, out of a genealogy. At least that was his his base assumption. So we, we pop up on this genealogy. What are some things that we can highlight here to help our people get more saturated in respect to God's move in the Exodus. Because remember, in the back of our minds is not Moses Pharaoh, Israel Pharaoh, or even Israel delivered, is God Pharaoh, is God slaughtering, crushing, sacrificing all idols and demonstrating his true sovereignty and his true worth and elevating his own glory. That's what we got to keep. The cosmic battle has got to be in the front of our people's minds. So how do we help them see God's sovereignty and God's glory in all of this? And what exactly is Moses doing with these genealogies? Well, I think the first thing that we can point out is that it wouldn't have been odd to see this genealogy. The New American Commentary points out that you will oftentimes see these things at turning points in ancient um, stories that for us it's a little bit jarring because we see, okay, God's about to show up. God's about to do the work. Let's get to it. And then all of a sudden it's, like the brakes are smashed because we got to go through this genealogy with all these names. But with respect to the culture of the ancient Near East, it wouldn't have been uncommon at all because we want to get the characters right, their authority, their validity, their credentials, I guess, would be the best way to say it. They're going to shore that up before now this very God acts. And, and you'll see the doubling down on the testimony that this is that Moses and Aaron. You see it said twice at the end of this genealogy. So for one, we can help our people to see that it's not weird. And the reason that's important is because we're now pushing them on, again, how to read the Bible well, historical context. Stop trying to read this with Western culture, so-called U.S. European eyes. We want to read it like an ancient Near East person would have read it, like those in the wilderness who received the oral culture before Moses wrote all this. 
we want to try to read it like them as best we can. So helping them understand that it was a radically different culture, um, radically different style in many ways, and that this was normal is one way to elevate the importance of getting the cultural uh, context as well as the historical context. The second thing I'd point out to them is that genealogies were selective. And so not only how to read the Bible well, but how do we read parts of the Bible well? So how do we read genealogies well? Um, the, the What we ought to say is that we read genealogies as if they're making a point, that the purpose here is not to get a detailed, um, every nook and cranny, so to speak, family tree, is to trace authority, is to, is to establish credentials. So some people are left off. These are selective. The point in these genealogies wasn't to be comprehensive, but was to demonstrate where someone came from and thus who they are now, why they matter now. And so the the language often used is selective. These are selective genealogies to make some point. And then this can be a segue to talk about how do we read the Gospels well? Well, if the genre of Gospel is historical biography, as I think it is, and many New Testament scholars, the faithful ones whom I love, think it is, then we need to understand what historical biography is about as a genre. And historical biography, just from the massive amounts of texts we have, both New Testament and other texts as well, is that historical biographies wanted to make a point about the hero of the story. They wanted to make a point about the um, the main character, uh, about whom they're writing. But they did not feel bound, as we often do, to be chronological in it. So I think if you pick up any biography, you may read the first couple paragraphs, and it may be sort of the high point of the person's life. And then all of a sudden there's a jump back. So-and-so was born on such-and-so a date in such-and-so a place. So while there might be a teaser at the beginning that we're going to reconnect to in the middle of the of the story here in modern-day biography, historical biography wasn't that way. They They felt at liberty to mix and match events as much as they wanted in order to demonstrate some point about who the character is they're writing. That doesn't mean that they're making up any of the stories. All the stories are true. They would never, at least to our knowledge with the text we have and the um, supporting background historical records we have, that these individuals don't make up stories about the key figures. They just mix and match them and put them in an order to demonstrate some point about who they believe this individual to be. So not only are genealogies selective, but understanding the selectivity of a genealogy to elevate some principle of about a person can lay the groundwork for how we ought to also read the Gospels in that historical biographers felt free to be selective in which stories they used and what order they put the stories in such that they could demonstrate what they wanted about the individual. All of it true. No lies in it, no errors, no no falsehoods or exaggerations, just different ordering to make a point. But that's different often than the way we'd expect it to be. So we got to continually help our people not read with so-called Western culture contemporary eyes. Third thing I'd point out is that there's only two generations listed. And this goes to the selectivity, right? So Levi, we get a massive record for Levi. But then for Reuben, we get two generations. And then Simeon, we get two generations. Why? Well, the reason is because those aren't the priestly class. That Moses really doesn't care about that. And then Moses is going to trace his descendants and Aaron as well to this priesthood of Levi. 
And so we see the selectivity contrasted against the elaboration upon Levi really triggers us to the point that Moses is trying to say, we have priestly authority here. That, that's what this genealogy is about. Third, that Levi is contrasted to these other two um, in some subtle ways. One is we see in verse 15 that there's a son of a Canaanite woman. Now, this is significant on multiple levels. Uh, one level is that it demonstrates that Israel is an amalgam of other peoples. They're not all pure. And while that's a good thing, and while I think the Israelites, or at least many of them, Moses, liked this, that the Lord was reconciling others to him with respect to the priestly class, that's a negative. So in in God's grand story, it's amazing that he's saving Canaanite people and the like. But in terms of the the but in terms of the necessary purity and credentials of the priesthood, it is not good for there to be mixtures. It needs to be pure Israel, pure ethnic Israel. And that's largely the point I think Moses is making. When he traces these sons of Levi, it's a purer line. There aren't many tangents and people coming in from the outside, but we see in Simeon's line there's a Canaanite woman there. Um so it's Moses again claiming, I have priestly authority. So Moses was seen as prophet. Yes, prophet come to deliver the people to be the mouthpiece of God. But also, hey, you know, I'm, I'm the priestly class too. This is a prophet and priest. And then um, certainly defending Aaron's uh, priesthood as well. The women that pop up here are interesting, not just because he uses Canaanite women to contrast the purity of the Levi line versus the other lines. But just to say that they're elevated, that it's um, that it's significant, maybe it's a point to marriage, and the uh, close knit, the the close knit nature of the community that that the women are elevated and they do matter. Now we see how that gets abused later in the law, where the women were seen as less than, and Moses permitted, as Jesus explained it, Moses permitted them to divorce because of their hardness of hearts and the women weren't cared for. So is God buttressing the sinfulness of man? And I mean that by gender, man, in order to protect women. But nevertheless, seeing them pop up in this genealogy is just interesting and invaluable to show that there there is an elevation of the female within the legacy of God. And then we see the same thing with respect to Jesus, where Rahab and others certainly pop up in that genealogy. They trace their line back to Israel, the man, that is Jacob. Remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So they track themselves to Israel. But not only that, the priests, the pure ethnic Israel, who are credentialed and um, permitted to be priests because of their line, because of their people. Lastly, I think is really interesting because you get these attacks on the Bible uh, just from all small sorts of places just just all over the place but one thing i love about the bible is it keeps everything it just it doesn't it doesn't get rid of weird stuff and in exodus 6 verse 20 we get a weird stuff so amram married his father's sister jochebed and she bore him aaron and moses so what moses is saying there is that his dad married his aunt his dad married his aunt and it's uh we know later in the law that that's illegal the the Bible says clearly in the Mosaic law that you ought not marry your brother's sister because she's too close of a relative to you. And yet that's precisely how Moses came about is that his, 
his his dad married his father's sister. Um, and I, I find this incredibly interesting because the LXX, and I'm pulling this from the New American Commentary, the LXX is a Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Some editor in there changes this. Uh, they they change it to where Moses's mom and dad are cousins rather than aunt and nephew, but that that's just not what's there in in the oldest text that we have. Uh, so the Bible just keeps it all, and and you figure you figure if someone's making this up, and and Moses is later gonna make a law against this, though the law is not in effect now, but if he's later gonna do that. Uh, you, you just figure it would be a little cleaner that there wouldn't be these sort of quote perceived inconsistencies, but the Bible is just real life. Moses saying, this is just what really happened. This is who my mom was. This is who my dad was. And I think the Bible's authenticity shines through and that it keeps the stuff. That's a little, that's a little tough, a little tough to reconcile, uh, a little difficult to receive. And so how would I use the gene- genealogy as I'm teaching this? Is one, I would use it to explain to my people why they need to get after the historical cultural context. And I do that through the selective reading of genealogy. The, or I guess I should say selective construction of genealogy is that we, we need to read this as ancient Near East people would have read it. Moreover, that the genealogy exists in this location at all is normal in the ancient Near East. That we are about to get into the full swing of God's action against Pharaoh in Egypt. So, establishing the credentials of Aaron and Moses and this is who exactly they are that's about to bear this really really incredible testimony as if a burning bush and the snake blood leprosy stuff wasn't enough it's about to get really crazy so here I'm going to I'm going to defend my credentials one more time about who I am and who we are so it's not unexpected in ancient near east writings moreover the fact that the genealogy is selective rather than comprehensive is normal and right in ancient Near Eastern writings. So that will let us encourage our people to get after the historical context, to get after the cultural context, that we point out that only two generations are mentioned, that the, that elevates the significance of the Levi line, and that points us to the fact that Moses is doing this to defend his priesthood status, that Levi is understood as pure Israelite, there's no Canaanite women or anything like that mentioned in it, and that they trace to Israel, of course, Jacob, that gives them the authority that women are present shows the how God does create man and woman Genesis one twenty six, and then lastly that this genealogy keeps all the stuff the weird stuff too, like uh, Moses' dad marrying his aunt. So I would, I would attack the genealogy that way, both to train our people to read the Bible well, but also elevate some um, some defense of the scriptures, and and helping them to get after Moses' actual point, including the genealogy in the first place. The last thing I do in this lesson is talk about what is meant to have uncircumcised lips because it's a strange, it's a strange line. And he keeps telling God this, like, who am I? Who am I to do this? I'm a poor speaker. My, my lips are uncircumcised, etc. So again, I don't think it's Moses because of his education, because of the way he writes the rest of the Pentateuch, because of the way he talks in the rest of the Pentateuch. I don't think he's saying here. I don't have the rhetorical chops to talk to people. I think like I opened with, this is him physically being present, but spiritually still lacking saying, God, I still don't think we can get this done. I don't think the people are going to come behind us. Uh, I, I don't think, 
I don't, I don't think there's anything I can do to convince these people. I, I think that's what he's telling God right there. Since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Because the Israelite people weren't even listening to him. And, I, and God is continuing to take Moses down this road to demonstrate it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about me delivering my people, elevating my name, bringing my name glory. Moses may have been going back to that scene in chapter four where his wife circumcised his son. Remember, Gershom was going to be killed and taken out because of the impurity that he would have brought into the into the community. But Moses' wife circumcises him there, says the ritual blessing as best she could, and God accepted it as sufficient in God's grace. Maybe Moses is hearkening back to that and saying, God, my mouth is like that. Please send me away because my mouth is not pure enough to achieve your word. Just like you were going to cast my son out, cast me out because I don't want to do this. And yet the Lord says, we're going to get this done. So Moses pushes back again. We see the transition in chapter seven. I'll just read the first verse. The Lord answered Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh and Aaron, your brother will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother will declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. And so it's more than just let us go three days and do a festival. God is telling Moses, now is the time. Now you get it. Now you see that Pharaoh is not going to relent, that he's not going to change. And now it's time for me to demonstrate my glory and my power in the deliverance of my people, overcoming all of the Egyptians' gods, overcoming all the idols, overcoming your own hard-heartedness against me, Moses, your own doubts against me. And I'm going to reconcile all this together as I deliver my people out of Egypt to take them into the promised land.